Somewhere right now, a parent is telling a child, say you're sorry. And in just a few more moments, that same parent will be saying, no, say it like you mean it. When that happens, what is the parent looking for? What are the signs that someone is really sorry? That they are experiencing sorrow over their sin. That's one of the many places where we are seeking this summer to find God in the middle of. Finding Him in the middle of the Psalms. Finding Him even in the middle of our sorrow over sin. Now, one of the tests to know whether or not you're really sorry is if that sorrow leads to change in our behavior. There's a theological, a biblical term for that, sorrow that leads to change, and it's called repentance. When we sin, repentance is the appropriate response. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, it was recorded in in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and he says, you need to do two things. You need to repent, and you need to believe the gospel. So if half of what Jesus is commanding there is to repent, it's probably pretty important that we understand what is meant by repentance. We're searching this morning for true repentance, and we're getting help today from a great psalm of David, Psalm 51. You can be turning there now. Some other time, perhaps this afternoon, if you want to get the the richer, fuller biblical backstory to what's going on, you'd find that in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But here's it basically. A glance turns into lust, turns into adultery, turns into an attempted cover-up and a murder. And so in all of this, David is evil, and he's delusional. He's delusional in his attempts to try to cover it up, thinking that he could somehow pull one over on the people, not to mention the fact that he's trying to pull one over on God. He has fallen about as far as anyone can fall. And Psalm 51 springs up from when he is forced to come to grips with what he's done. Uh, And so it's a psalm, it's poetry, and it is an emotional outpouring. And as such, it is not sequential and linear like uh, part of Paul's epistles might be if we were going to study them. We're going to see him go back and forth, back and forth between Uh, begging for forgiveness and feeling somewhat assured of it, but then begging again. And and so we're going to do a couple of, we're going to do one main thing this morning, and that's look at the nuts and bolts of repentance, right? What is true repentance, what is not? But don't miss also from this big picture of this going back and forth, of begging for forgiveness, kind of feeling assured of it, then begging for it again. You know, that's our experience, right? 
when we're in the midst of sin, when we're under the burden of a guilty conscience, it is, it's hard to hold on to the promises. Right? It, it's hard to, I, I know this to be true, but oh, this is what I'm feeling right now. And we go back and, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, so keep that big picture in mind, even as we get to looking at the nuts and bolts of what true repentance is this morning. I want to ask you to stand if you're able. 19 verses, so keep that in mind. No problem if you need to, if you need to remain seated. Psalm 51, God's Word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May God bless the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Father, would you come and help? Help us to know what it means to have sinned only against you. Help us know what it is to find joy and gladness on the other side of true repentance. Help us to see clearly Jesus, the friend of sinners, who makes repentance and forgiveness possible. Help us to see it's ultimately not about us, but it's about those around us as well. And the glory of your name for which we ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so a little disclaimer to start, y'all. This is an amazing psalm, and there is so much treasure here that we will only be scratching the surface, right? We're going to leave some meat on the bones for sure at the end of our time together. Uh, I think an outline is especially important this morning since we're not following through Uh, verse by verse by verse in order, but we're going to be jumping around a lot to see the following things that you've got on your outline. 
Uh, number one, the effects of unconfessed sin, something we've looked at and seen the last two weeks, both in Psalm 6 and Psalm 32. Uh, the second thing is we need to look at specifically what is David asking God for? Uh, the third thing is, is a litmus test, right? How do we know that it's true repentance? How do we know that we got it right? Fourth, we're going to talk about the fact that it's not ultimately about the behavior, even though that's where our focus always lasers in on. Uh, and finally, uh, two pretty impressive results of true repentance. So uh, we'll get started. Number one, the effects of unconfessed sin. Look at verse three. Uh, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Uh, When we have unconfessed sin, there is no rest from our conscience that has been wounded, right? Uh, David lies down at night. He closes his eyes. He expects to escape in the moment, only to have his sin flash on the screen of his heart and his mind. There is no getting away from it. It's always before him. Second half of verse 8, we've got another mention of bones, all right? So this is the third psalm we've looked at in a row about repentance, about unconfessed sin. Psalm 6, his bones were troubled. Psalm 32, his bones wasted away this morning in 51, they're broken. That they are crushed as if, as if the weight and the burden of his sin, the guilt and the condemnation he's feeling is just too much for his frame to carry. And God causes the weight of that to crush his bones. His unconfessed sin also makes him fearful. Now, probably verse 11 raises the most questions in this psalm. If not 11, then 5. But 11, uh, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. All right? Lots of questions there that I'm not going to entertain at this point. But right now, just listen to the fear in David's voice. He is afraid something really bad is going to happen because of his sin. And fear is a natural result and consequence of unconfessed sin. You see it over and over again in Scripture. Proverbs talk about running, fleeing when no one's chasing you. Unconfessed sin brings fear into our lives. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. His guilt is holding him in bondage, a bondage from which he is begging to be delivered from. Verse 15, he's, he's asking the Lord, say, O Lord, open my lips. His unconfessed sin has silenced him in many ways, but certainly in keeping him from the praise that he should be offering the Lord. All right, so consider all of these effects, the sum total of them, but also consider how long David must have been languishing with his unconfessed sin. It wasn't just a night, a day, or a week. This went on. He's living in delusion for a long time until God finally sent his prophet Nathan before God finally graciously softened David's heart to the reality of his sin and led him to repent. 
Point two, what specifically is David asking for? What are we asking for in repentance? And in a word, it's mercy. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Very simplest definition of mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's what mercy is. You got something coming, and it doesn't make its way all the way to you. It is stopped short for some reason. The clear witness of Scripture is that the wages of sin is death. Death is what we earn for our toil at sin. And so please, God, David says, don't give me what I deserve. And he knows he deserves it. You can hear that in the second part of of verse 4, right? Uh, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. God could give him exactly what he deserved, and no one could say anything against God about it. It would be absolutely warranted. No one could say, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem just. Even that very questionable verse 11, right? Cast me away. Take your spirit from me. Absolutely warranted. You know, part of why David might be specifically afraid of that in verse 11 is because he's so recently seen it happen. He witnessed it happen to his predecessor when Saul was disobedient and unrepentant over it. God did remove his spirit. God did cast him away from his presence. So David is asking for mercy. He's asking to not get what he deserves. Now, why does he think this might even be a possibility? Why does he think that this request stands a chance of being answered? It's only because of, and we have it yet again, Hesed. Steadfast love. This faithful, never giving up, relentless, covenant-keeping love. David says, don't give me mercy because I'm a nice guy. Don't give me mercy because I'm the king and, well, I'm important and stuff. It's just simply because you've promised that I'm yours, that you're my God. See, ultimately, there's a boldness about this. Now, it it does waver because he's, you know, teetering and tottering. But there's a boldness underlying this request that can only come from at least at some level remaining convinced that he's in the covenant that he still belongs and God won't cast him out. Now, what specifically? Let's, let's dive down a little bit further. He's asking for mercy. He's, he thinks he might get it because of God's steadfast love. What specifically in God's mercy does he need to happen? Um, I, I was thinking about the, the lyric in 
in the hymn Rock of Ages, right? Be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. And I think these are the two things that David's really asking for here and that we see pretty clearly in this psalm. The guilt would be taken care of by this request for blotting out. And the power of sin, the continued power of sin is taken care of by cleansing and washing. All right, so let's look first at blotting. And we see that in verses 1 uh, and then also uh, in, verses, uh, in verse 9. Now, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And then in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. So it's kind of the picture of changing the record books. Right? There was something written down in the record about David, about you, about me. And then we take a Sharpie, the, the really big, fat one, right? and mark over it and mark over it and mark over it until you can't see it anymore, even if you held it up to the light. Right? That's blotting out. Uh, you're changing the record. Take the record of my sin and guilt, O God, and forever change that record. Paul uh, gives us a a New Testament understanding of that in Colossians 2. Um, You who were dead in your trespasses and, uh, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of that death that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. So there's this one aspect of, of blotting. Uh, God's going to hide his face. He's not going to look at it anymore. He can't see it anymore. It's blotted out. It's gone. The record of it doesn't exist anymore. Cleanse me from its guilt, but also cleanse me from its power. Let's look at the second aspect. Cleansing, washing, we see in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And then in verse 7, purge me with, with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, gosh, what is whiter than, than, than pure, undefiled snow as it first comes down? Uh, hyssop here is, is used in Old Testament purification rites and part of the sacrificial process. And it points us to, ultimately, the blood of Christ sprinkled clean, right? This is what the Spirit does. The prophets talk about being sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. Prophet Isaiah understood that, that this, this white as snow. He's pointing to Christ as well. Isaiah one eighteen. come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like well, and that is ultimately where we have to look, right? The reason that our sins can be blotted out, the reason that we can be washed clean is only because of the powerful blood of the spotless lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. Because see, there's, a, there's some pretty deep self-knowledge here, which is a, a good and a healthy thing in, in verses 3 through 5 especially where the psalmist is coming to grips with who he is and just how bad off he is. And that could lead one to absolute and utter despair. Or it can lead you to the foot of the cross. 
where the blood of Jesus does in fact cleanse us from the guilt and the power of sin. So that's the specifics of what he's at. He's asking for mercy because of steadfast love. And in that mercy, he knows he needs sins blotted out. He needs the record changed. He needs the ongoing power of sin to be cleansed. Now, how do we know if we're really sorry? Right? That's what the parent says. No, say it like you mean it. I can tell you're not really sorry. So how do we know if we're really sorry? Did I just say sorry because I was being forced to, to get mom and dad off my case? Verse 4 is the acid test of true repentance. Against you, you alone, you only, have I sinned. We know that our repentance is true if God is at the center of it and not us. We know our repentance is true if God is at the center of it and not us. See, we've got to find out what exactly we find so upsetting about our sin if indeed we are upset. What is it about this whole deal that is making me so upset? Is it the consequences we now face? Is it the blemished reputation that we now have? Or is it the restitution that we're going to have to make? Or is it distress over violating the law and the character of our God? See, true repentance is not self-pity. It's not self-pity over the consequences that we now find ourselves in. True repentance is not being upset about the mess that we're in. Keller had this good paragraph about this aspect of it not being self-pity. If this is all that is happening in your heart, you will only avoid the sin in the future if it hurts you. The sin itself has not become ugly to you, and it has not lost its attractive power over you. If, however, you repent over the fact that sin has broken God's heart and dishonored the one to whom you owe everything, you will begin to find the sin itself heinous. It will lose its power, and you will be cleansed and free to change. See, repentance is not just feeling sorry for yourself. Now, some balk at at, at verse 4 and the way that it's worded, because it might seem to make light of the other people that David has heard in the process of his many sins. Because it's not only God who was offended. I think Uriah was pretty offended in this process. What David seems to be understanding is that even if every external problem at play here could be rectified, and it can't because you can't bring Bathsheba's husband back from the dead, but even if he could rectify every part of the external nature of things, the offense of God would remain. It would be paramount. 
in our sins, sometimes we're even able to escape earthly punishment. We will never escape an offended God. Another way to look at this, the first and therefore greatest offense in any tangled mess that we've gotten ourselves into, the first and greatest offense is always against God. Martin Luther said, you can't break commandments 2 through 10 without having first broken commandment 1. Where you placed some other God before him. You allowed something else to become more important. You allowed something else to be some, that thing that you cannot live without. And so for David, it started with Bathsheba. I have to have her. And then once he royally messed all that up, then it became about his reputation. I cannot be embarrassed. I must cover this up. Now, the other important thing that we need to see here, the root sin springs from an internal problem. So we're still in that... uh, Third point, the root sin springs from an internal problem that we see in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's go ahead and dismiss a couple of things here. He's not speaking ill against his mother or of his conception. Here's what he is speaking of. The fact that he brought nothing good into this world only sinfulness, right? And so this is another objectionable verse. It's going to raise some questions in your mind, and that's good. You say, wait a minute. I mean, a a teeny, innocent little baby has iniquity. They haven't even had time to do anything wrong. And this is indeed another theological rabbit hole that we could go down, but we're not. But let me give you the the briefest of synopses about what's going on here. Uh, Calvin, in an an economy of words, said, we're born into this world with the seed of every iniquity. The potential, the capability, it's there. We're we're destitute of spiritual good. We've got corruption that extends to every part of the soul, mind, and heart. Now, David's not mentioning this as an excuse, right? We, we could be kind of flipping about this and say, oh, gosh, from the womb, I'm so, I can't really help it. It's just how I am. No, he's not, he's not using it as an excuse. He's using it as, as a way of his total ownership of what has happened. He recognizes that this sin wasn't just some aberration. It wasn't just some fluke that happened. Oh, my gosh, where did that come from? That's not the real me. I would would never do anything like that. It it wasn't a slip-up of an otherwise outstanding person. Quite the contrary, here is a terrible example of what I am truly capable of deep, deep down. See, I'm not a good person who occasionally lapses into bad behavior. I'm deeply flawed on the inside. And as such... We need to talk about point four. 
If I am deeply flawed on the inside, sinful even from birth, with the seed of every iniquity present, then it can't just be, repentance can't just be about my behavior and about fixing my behavior. No, the solution is internal, not external. But boy, howdy, is our bent sure to try to address the external to the exclusion of the internal. What can we do to fix this? All right, last week I mentioned sometimes we, we try to mound up a pile of good deeds to bury the sin underneath so that maybe no one will see it. But God's not ultimately interested in what's on the outside, on us attempting to modify our behavior or engage in a flurry of religious activities as a distraction or a cover-up or penance or whatever. Uh, think if you, if you tell your child, I need you to take out the trash. And they just don't do it. And you come back later and you say, I told you to take out the trash. Well, I didn't want to do it. All right, that doesn't work. Here's a consequence for that disobedience. Come back the second time, I need you to take out the trash stomping, door-slamming, mumbling under the breath, and takes out the trash. But do you think there's actually been repentance in that situation? Calvin, again, this may be on the screen. It's not enough that our lives be confirmed to the letter of His law unless our heart be clean and purified from all guile. You know, earlier I mentioned, I guess in the intro, that a change in behavior is, is one of the signs, one of the tests of true repentance, but it is certainly not the only one, and it's not the most important. That's why David says what he does in verse 16. All right? You wouldn't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You won't be pleased with the burnt offering. He's realizing this now, though I guarantee you for months he's been engaged in that religious activity, going through the motions. Oh, this will please God. I'm going to do the sacrificial thing. I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to go through the motions. Carrying on with the behavior and the actions of religion with a heart that was still far from his God. God despises empty religion. I think one of the most chilling passages of Scripture is Malachi 1, where he says, would that you would shut the temple doors. Don't even go in anymore. Don't you dare go through the motions with me. He doesn't want right actions with a wrong heart. What God most wants, (laughs) we can't do. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, broken, contrite, that's when we are realizing and we're at this place where we've got no confidence left in ourselves. We've got nothing left to offer, nothing with which to work a solution to get us out of this mess that we've made. We're coming to the Father with empty hands. We're not bringing Him anything other than our sin. We've got empty hands, and they're just ready to receive grace. 
right? That's what he's looking for. That's the response that he won't despise. Now, how do we get there? Friends, it takes a miracle. It takes a miracle, verse 10. As miraculous as it was when he flung the stars into space, as it is when he gives us a new heart that now loves what it didn't used to love, when he gives us a right spirit that now wants the good that it didn't used to want. Now that's miraculous. That's where he wants us to be in the process of repentance. That we're changed at a motivational level. right? We no longer want to do this stuff over here and we now want to do what is pleasing in his sight. And nothing less than a miracle of God's grace can make that happen. Fifthly and finally, two pretty amazing results. One we would kind of expect, and that's this joy-filled praise that you see over and over in this psalm. Let's just uh, look at it quickly and briefly. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken... Rejoice. Then again, verse 12, right? Restore to me the joy, right? Restore, bring me back to where I once was. And then in in 14 and 15, right? We're going to be singing aloud and we're going to be declaring praise, right? So this is the result that we would kind of expect, right? This makes sense to us. The other result... Equally as impressive, though we might not think about it, is this outward focus that results, right? This this whole notion of me getting right with God isn't all about me and not really for the point of me in the long run, which we saw in Psalm 32 as well, right? But it results in this winsome and effective witness. It results in, in good for those around you. Verse 13, Uh, then, at the end of the result of this, I will teach transgressors your ways, and probably more remarkably is that sinners will return to you. I'm going to be not just a witness, I'm going to be an effective witness. Folks are going to turn from their sins because of the testimony that I'm bearing, and I think it has very much to do with what he is singing about in verse 14, right? He's singing about your righteousness. And very often we want to sing about what we've done or how we've gotten it all together and that is not winsome or effective. But when we sing about what has been done for us when we did not deserve it, y'all, that is deeply attractive to others. Uh, Verses 18 and 19, I'm not going to read those, but you you see there a picture of flourishing. Uh, And we've got to remember in all this that David wasn't just any Joe Schmo who blew it big time. He was the king of a nation, of the covenant people of God and was their representative. And so 
uh, his evil, his unconfessed sin places the whole nation in danger. And so a comeback for the king, if you will, means a a comeback for the kingdom. And And our repentance is very often bigger than us. It has a ripple effect and a benefit for those around us. True repentance will bring glory to God and it will bring good to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you that you show us uh, an example of deep failure, but also of ultimately true repentance and your gracious hand at work bringing beauty from ashes, redeeming that which is broken, bringing glory to yourself and good to others. Lord, would you bear the same thing out in and through our lives by your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.